Hey guys, welcome to Upbeats. I'm your host, Parker Kane. Thank you very much for being here, for listening in today. If you would, please follow the podcast wherever it is you're listening to it right now. That's always much appreciated. And I announced this last week, but I finally have a new website too. So go check it out, parkercane.co, parkercane.co. Uh, And today, you guys, we've got a great episode with Rob Berger. He's a deputy editor at Forbes. He's an investor, lawyer, blogger, podcaster. He's the host of the Dough Roller Money podcast, which has interviews and news and tips and a bunch of other resources to help you achieve ultimate financial freedom. He's also an author. His book is titled Retire Before Mom and Dad. His story is just awesome. And his mission to help people gain control of their finances is incredible. And that's why I'm so thankful to have him on the podcast today. You know, COVID-19 is really, really wreaking some havoc and finance is a big issue right now for a lot of people. So Rob is very kind to be here on Upbeat and to share with us his story and his tactics and really help us level up our finances. Let's get into it. Rob, thank you very much for joining me on Upbeat. I appreciate it. Parker, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, and I'd love to kick this off by first getting to know you better. So if you could just catch myself and the listeners up uh, about you, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and maybe how you ended up where you are today. Sure. I'll give you the short version and then, you know, feel free to throw any questions you want. But so, you know, I grew up in Ohio, um, went to college and then went to law school got married very young. I was 21. And uh, to, to a lovely uh, woman who has stuck with me now to be 32 years in August. And she even went up to Boston with me to go to, for, for law school. And we moved to Virginia. I started, you know, uh, practicing law here in Washington, D.C. I did that for 25 years, but my story sort of took a, an unexpected turn. In 07, just on a lark, I started a personal finance uh, website just out of interest, just a hobby, never thought of it as a business, and was up at 5 a.m., seven days a week, working on this thing while I was practicing law full-time. And it just slowly turned into a business to the point where I retired from the practice of law at 49 to work on the website full-time. And then just out of nowhere, a company approached me, asked to buy it. By that point, I had a podcast. I had you know a newsletter. I was writing for Forbes. So kind of out of nowhere, I sold the website. I still do the podcast, even though I don't own it. So I still do the Dough Roller podcast. That's the name of the site. But I sold everything and kind of just planned to retire. I ended up working at Forbes full-time for two years. I actually just went part-time. I published a book, Retire Before Mom and Dad. And then I ended up on your show. So that, that's my life story. <laughs> well, dang, sounds like quite the story. And I'm glad that Glad that you ended up right here, right now. That's too. awesome. <laughs> I am too. Awesome. Well, this podcast is largely, you know, about finding and pursuing our passions and helping others do that. So I'd love to ask you too, is personal finance uh, a passion of yours? And if so, when exactly did you realize that that's what you're passionate about and what you wanted to do? It's definitely a passion of mine. It, probably investing today, but really personal finance generally. You know, when I started, I was terrible with money as a kid. You know, I spent every, I mean, I had a job since I was, you know, 14 and I spent everything uh, that I ever made. Uh, once I started practicing law, though, it, it, something just clicked in me. So, you know, 
you can't, if you spend everything you make, then like, what, what good has it been? I mean, it's provided living for you, but you, you know, you're not, you're not making any progress. And so that's when it started for me. And then, you know, I made partner at this big firm, which is kind of one of the goals, I guess, if you're uh-huh. a lawyer. And yeah. I quit, I quit two years later. And I quit because I just didn't want that lifestyle. I looked at people 10 or 20 years older than I am, and I just didn't like what I saw and took a huge pay cut. But that's when I really started to think about personal finance, not just the nuts and bolts of it, but what makes me happy? What doesn't make me happy? How should I handle my money? And uh, that's ultimately what caused me to start the website um, and write my book. But uh, so it was, a, it was a process. But yeah, I'm kind of a, a money geek, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I guess taking that big pay cut and making those decisions, it was, I'm assuming, kind of a hard time too, maybe with still having like some student loan debt and stuff like that. Like what kind of were you thinking in regard to leaving that and then being able to, you know, achieve ultimate financial freedom? Well, I, I wish I could tell you I had some well thought out plan that I executed <laughs> perfectly. I really didn't. I mean, I knew we could survive. Um, my wife, who's wonderful, was not into the sort of big firm partnership lifestyle. She doesn't care about that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we still lived a nice life. It was, you know, it wasn't horrible or anything. It was a big, big difference. But we still managed to, you know, it took us a long time. But we eventually got out of debt, got out of school loans. Um, you know, we had probably the equivalent of about in today's dollars, one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars in school loans uh, in the early to mid nineteen nineties. So we had, you know, it was a lot of debt Uh, and it took us longer for sure. But, you know, it was a choice. It was a lifestyle choice. I wasn't traveling as much. I was home by five o'clock to be with the family. We have two children who are now grown. So it was was as much a lifestyle choice as anything else. Well, that makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. And I want to make sure we we discussed this too. What you what you were saying kind of reminded me of this acronym that you use all the time, FIRE. Uh, Uh, Could you break that down for us? So FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early, which are two related but very different things, right? And the the FIRE movement's kind of grown up in the last decade, I would say. And the the, the idea behind it is, you know, if you you, uh, live well below your means, you can achieve financial independence at a relatively young age, whether you choose to retire or not. Once you do so, it's up to you. Many people don't. And, you know, it's a, as a general rule of thumb, uh, very general, they, they, they define financial independence as having 25 times your annual expenses. So, you know, if you, if you spend 50 grand a year, there'd be 1.25 million. Obviously, if you spend more than that, it goes up. That's generally how they define financial independence. Um, and so that's the idea. Frankly, I wasn't thinking of FIRE when I was doing all of this. All of my stuff kind of predated what is now the FIRE movement. And I'm still not really retired, at least not in the traditional sense. I still work part-time at Forbes. And I have some websites that I kind of play with on the side that make a little bit of money. So uh, even now, I'm not really retired. But we are financially independent, at least by that, by that definition. Yeah. Well, and I think financial independence is definitely... Uh, you know, maybe you don't hear it that way all the time. You definitely hear financial freedom all the time, though. And uh, what are, I guess, your thoughts on ultimately financial freedom and and what it takes to get there, really what the finish line is, yeah. and then maybe even the saying, like, money can't buy happiness. You know, that's those are all things that are very 
you know, frequently thrown out there in conversation. So it's just kind of cool to have you here on the show and get kind of your thoughts on those things. Yeah. So I, those are great questions. Um, and they say money can't buy happiness. And, and I, I kind of, I get that now cause I've, I've been poor, I guess, and I've been not poor. Uh, but, but being not poor certainly beats being poor. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. all your problems don't magically go away. Uh, of course, but, you know, take the, the situation we're in now with COVID having some level of financial freedom makes all the difference in the world as you tr we try to, you know, get through this difficult time. In terms of financial freedom, and this is how I kind of walk it through in my book, I, I don't really, see, I, I see it more as a as sort of a, a, a journey, I guess, or a process. You know, you don't just wake up one day and, you know, yesterday you weren't financially free, but you've checked your balances and you've hit some number and magically you're now financially free or, you know, financially independent today. No, I don't really just think it, that this doesn't work that way. Um, and I kind of see it as a process. I mean, to me, uh, step one along the path is just having one month's worth of expenses, which a lot of people don't have. But um, you certainly can't retire on that. But you're no longer living month to month, right? You've got at least some cushion if something goes wrong. And I map it out through seven steps, but and they're all tied to your, your expenses, three months of expenses, then six, then a year, and so on. Um, but, but the thing that I stress is that long before you've reached any sort of goal that you might have, whether it's to retire early or just to retire on time, the money you've saved that you're not spending, right? It's in your 401k or your IRA or a taxable account, maybe a savings account for your emergency fund. It has a very tangible effect on your life while it sits there. It, it, has, it has a really important purpose. And one of the examples I give is one of the jobs I had after I left the law firm. In fact, my, my first one after 10 years at a, at a law firm, it, it was okay, but it didn't really work out. And I was in a meeting with the CEO of this public company and um, it was a very difficult meeting. And, and I remember sitting there thinking, I am so glad I can quit this job anytime I want. I, I can't retire. I gotta, if I quit, I got to go get another job. But I, I'm not stuck to this job because my finances are in, in, in shambles. I, I can quit this job if I want to. And we'll be okay. And um, I remember then thinking, yeah, money in the bank, even if you're not spending it, it is real important. It can have a tangible impact on your life. And in fact, I left that job shortly thereafter, went to work for, the, for a government agency for about six or seven years. And it was one of the best jobs uh, I've ever had. Took, took another pay cut, by the way, right? <laughs> when I did that. I kept, I kept going backwards for a while on the income scale. Um, but yeah, so that's how I think about financial freedom. Um, even, even if you have a goal like 25 times your expenses, it's not really in a magical moment when you hit it. Well, for starters, you could hit it and then COVID-19 could happen and all of a sudden your balances could go way back down. Uh, it's really much more of a process. But um, yeah, that's how I think about it. Awesome. Well, I love all of that. And I can definitely find uh, some sections of that that I, I relate to. In fact, I was sharing this a little bit to you in, in the emails leading up to this interview. But and full transparency, I just did an episode about this too that launched today, but I am experiencing some of the effects and impacts of COVID-19 and like I was let go from a job and I think like I'm so thankful that I have, 
you know, at least one or two months of some savings so I can right now just act fast and make the move to where I want to be and start looking for jobs and have some have some cushion room right there. Uh, but also, and it's nothing really too big to brag about or anything, but like I'm, I'm really working hard on like laying this foundation of like having multiple revenue streams. So I'm someone that's kind of at the beginning of, of the, these different stages. Um, and I'm sure a bunch of the listeners are in the same kind of boat where they're working on multiple revenue streams and, and saving money. So I can attest to that because <laughs> COVID-19 hit out of nowhere and, you just never know when when adversity is going to strike like that, and it's best to be prepared. Uh, but what are I'm glad you brought up COVID too. What what are some of the things you've seen happening? What are some of the problems arising, and how can people, I guess, take action and and get themselves through this hard time? Well, that, that's a great question, and of course, it's so it the, the answers vary so so significantly. I mean, I know folks that really haven't been affected much at all, right? They're some folks worked from home to begin with, and they've still got their job and they're still working. Uh, they, we, of course, we've all been affected in terms of how we live our lives, but but financially, I know a lot of people that haven't been affected at all. And then, you know, I know folks, you know, either it's in the retail or travel industries, you, you didn't have a job for months. Now, the folks that I know were able to get through largely on the the uh, the financial aid, effectively, that the federal government had 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 authorized through what's called the CARES Act, right? So they were getting, of course, a stimulus check and um, enhanced unemployment. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's how they got through it. But I'll tell you the biggest effect I've seen uh, is, you know, when we went into this, you couldn't do anything, right? You couldn't go to a coffee shop. You couldn't go out to eat. You couldn't go to the movies. And I think a lot of people, after several weeks of that, at least that I've talked to, said, you know, I took all these things for granted. And I kind of assumed that I needed all of these things to be happy. And yeah, I missed them at first, but now I'm not so sure I had it right to begin with. Maybe the things I thought were making me happy, uh, particularly as it relates to how I'm spending my money, may, you know, maybe those, those weren't as important to me uh, as I thought they were. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, because, you know, have you heard of the latte factor? I don't know if you're familiar with the latte factor. I haven't personally, no. Well, it, it, the idea is rather than spending a couple of bucks a day on a latte at your you know, Starbucks or wherever, save the money and invest it. And if you do that, it seems like it's so insignificant. What's whatever, three, four, five bucks a day, how much is that going to turn out to be? But over you know a lifetime of investing, it's hundreds of thousands and potentially even millions of dollars. And one of the responses I get from folks is, well, that's silly, Rob. I want to live my life, right? I mean, I understand we should save some, but I'm going to have fun and live life to the fullest. You never know, you know, tomorrow is promised to no one. My response to that is always, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely you do. And you have to decide for yourself what that means for you. And if that means a $5 latte every day, good luck and Godspeed. But have you ever thought that, yeah, maybe if you actually went without it for a few weeks, you might find out that, you know, it turns out that's not actually as um, important to me as I thought it was. Now, you know, you, you could try an experiment and go without whatever it might be for three weeks. And you may conclude, yeah, that really is important to me. I want to keep consuming whatever it might be. And that's perfectly fine. But um, in, in some ways, COVID has forced us into life experiments that most of us would have never undertaken, but were forced to. You know, I, I hope a lot of good comes out of that in terms of the way we think about money and, and how we spend it and um, how we save it. 
I talk to a lot of people who will say things like, I just can't save. I don't have the money. And we start talking about how they're spending their money. And I say, well, wait a minute, you could save. You're choosing not to. And the point of that is not to pick on them. I'm not judging them. I'm not saying they should spend their money differently. That's their choice. But uh, understand the control and power you have, right? Uh, There are certainly some things we spend on that we absolutely have to to spend on. You know, we've got to feed ourselves and, and clothe ourselves and have a place to live. But a lot of what we spend on is not a necessity. And we should at least understand the difference. And then what we choose to do is up to us. But uh, that difference, I think, can be life-changing for some folks, understanding that difference. Yeah. Well, and it brings up a a really interesting angle to, like in the things you shared, it it brings an interesting angle to like what we actually do need versus what we don't. Like how you said, the coffee shop every day, that was something you felt like, that that was something that someone felt like they needed, but they don't, they're learning now through COVID, they don't actually need it. Well, if you start looking at that in every aspect of your lives, like the shows you watch, the phone you have in your hand, the, the, the things in your house, like how much of it was actually something you really needed and how much of it could you cut to save, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month? Absolutely. And, and to me, the real takeaway is this, we have far more control over what makes us happy than we think we do. And a lot of what we do is just out of habit and routine. And there's nothing wrong with that to a point. But um, and I do this kind of thing, thinking through with food that I eat. Um, and like you said, TV that you watch. I mean, there was one point when I was a kid, our TV broke. And we couldn't afford to get it fixed or buy a new one. And I was like in agony for weeks. It was <laughs> terrible. But after two or three weeks, you totally forgot about it. It wasn't even a thought. Um, again, I'm not saying get rid of your TVs. We have a TV. But I do think we have far more control uh, over what makes us happy than we sometimes think. Yeah, definitely. Well, and those are some already good actionable steps that that we can start taking to save if we are experiencing, you know, debt and some financial struggles. But what are some other things maybe we could do, uh, you know, myself, but also, you know, listeners of this podcast, like, like, say you've never really saved much. You're, you're here in this podcast, you're thinking you're going to start looking at your finances and making those cuts. What are some other like easy or quick actionable things we can start doing right now to just kind of help us out and give us a nudge? So a couple of things I would suggest. The first thing is what I call the money audit. And I talk about this in the book, but um, it's pretty straightforward. Write down all of your monthly bills, um, everything from utilities to car payment, all your debt, and then go one by one and ask one, do I need this? Can I just get rid of it? And I, I get extreme on that. Like if you have a car loan, you might be able to get rid of it by selling your car. Now, a lot of people will say, well, I can't do that. I need my car. Well, <laughs> yeah. Maybe you do. Maybe you do need your car and maybe getting rid of it's not an option for you, but at least you should think about it. But in any event, go through every single one. Do I need this? Can I get rid of it? If I do need it, can I in some way change what I have to reduce the cost? So for example, raise your deductible on your car insurance. Um, or maybe you've got life insurance, but the truth is you don't need quite as much as you have and you can get it at a lower cost. Or you've got cable and it turns out you don't need 500 channels, 100 will do just fine. Or in our case, we left cable and went to YouTube TV, which the prices keeps going up on YouTube TV, but we're still <laughs> saving money. Um, and, and, and then, you know, once you've somehow reduced it down and made sure you, do you need it all? Yes, what, here's what I do need, or here maybe some things I can get rid of for what you're going to keep. Um, can you can you reduce it in some way or change it to get the price down? And then 
And then comparison shop, right? That's the third thing. And it seems somewhat, I don't know, very basic and mundane to me. Uh, and, it, and it is in a way. But um, if you can save 50 bucks a month from that process by going through and looking at all your bills or 100 bucks a month, I, I listeners of my podcast have emailed me. Some of them have saved 500 to 1,000 between getting a much lower cost wireless service um, and changing their car insurance and refinancing some of their debt to lower interest rates and you add it all up. Some of them are saving a lot of money. And th then the real key is whatever you save, you need to take that amount and automating this process is the best and put it to good use. That could be saving, increasing your emergency fund in a, in a savings account. It could be paying extra on debt that you have. And it could be investing like in a 401k at work uh, or in an IRA on your own, or it could be some combination of all of those things. Uh, but if you don't do that, if it just sits in your checking account, it's going to be gone and you're not even going to know what you spend it on. So put it to good use in one of those ways. Uh, automate that process if you can. So have, you know, obviously a 401k is automated. It comes right out of your paycheck. But you can do the same thing into an IRA. You can automate the payment of debt. Uh, you can automate transfers from your checking account, let's say, to an online savings account where maybe you keep your emergency fund. Automating that process, I think, is is important because it happens without you having to do anything. And frankly, after a while, you kind of forget about it. To me, those simple steps, even if you're talking about relatively small amounts of money, will over time have life-changing implications for folks. Definitely. Well, and it's you know, it's great. It's kind of like, these are things you can do right now. That's just, it takes one time to do it. And then hopefully, you know, as you move on and forget about it, it's not going to harm you in any way. It's just going to benefit yeah. you. Can, can I give you another example? Yeah, go for it. So about, you know, we have credit cards. I think, you know, we pay off our balances in full every month, but we have cash back and travel cards. And about a year and a half ago, I had this idea. I thought, you know, cause I wanted to figure out how I can show people the value uh, and the potential of saving and investing small amounts of money over time. So about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I got this idea that rather than spending the credit card rewards that we get, I would save them. And so I, cr I created a separate investment account. This one happened to be at M1 Finance. You know, I, I recommend Vanguard, which is, I think is the best place for people to invest. And that's where we invest primarily. We have Fidelity account as well. But for this to keep it separate, I opened it up at M1 Finance, and I just started, you know, putting our credit card rewards each month or each quarter uh, into this account. And I kind of updated uh, on the, the YouTube channel that I have, but um, we're at like over $10,000 in this account now. And every dime is either from a credit card reward or a cashback website reward like Ebates, uh, that sort of thing. I think wow. it's called Rack Rakuten now. And it's just a combination of saving relatively small amounts of money each month, the investment returns that we've enjoyed, and, you know, and the compounding. And it didn't change our lifestyle in any way, right? Because it was money that we hadn't allocated anything to begin with because it's, you know, it's a credit card, cash by credit card reward or whatever. It's relatively small amounts. Normally, it would just get spent and I couldn't tell you where it went. And it's generated five figures in wealth over a relatively short period of time. And I suspect if I keep doing this and, you know, I, God keeps me on this planet long enough, it'll eventually be six figures. So yeah, that's just one, one way to slowly, but surely, you know, build your wealth. That's crazy. That's a really cool way to look at it too. Something that, 
probably not very many people have thought of. So, so, no, so you know what you get? You get the Instagram picture of someone who used all of their travel rewards to fly first class somewhere and they're in the first class cabin holding their champagne. <laughs> and it's fun. I've been in first class before and, and, and yeah, it's fun, but it's, it's eight hours of fun and you've spent a fortune. It just doesn't feel like you've spent a fortune because you use points or miles, but you have spent a fortune. Those points and miles have value. And, you know, when the trip's over, you're back in your cubicle working nine to five. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not sure that's really the best way to go. Again, we each have to make our own decisions. Uh, but that was sort of, it, it was actually the Instagram kind of um, perspective when I saw all these travel pictures of folks in first class, many of them, by the way, trying to sell credit cards. Um, I thought, yeah, I think there might be a better approach. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Again, I'm not being I'm not being judgmental. We all have to make our own choices on this, but I do think it's an important perspective to at least think about. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I just I feel because upbeat is, you know, this podcast is just about finding what we're passionate about, pursuing it, but it's also kind of turned into this more, you know, commit yourself to living upbeat more and personal development and learning new things and just making life as good as you can. And this is one of those things where you know, maybe the truth hurts, but like you have to make that adjustment. You know, a lot of these things aren't going to be crazy difficult. It's just that you're putting a little bit more time and attention into it and it's going to have a, a large effect. Right. Absolutely. Awesome. So I love that. Um, and I wanted to hit this too, but, and I say this all the time on the podcast, but it's 2020 and like the internet is alive and well. So what are your thoughts on I guess, quote unquote, having side hustles and like multiple revenue streams and building online businesses. Uh, do you have any thoughts, I guess, to share about those things? Well, the side hustle changed my life, right? I mean, when I started doughroller.net um, in 07, it was just a hobby. I didn't know a thing about SEO, social media. Most of the social media platforms we have today didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, and I just learned day by day, you know, I, I met a lot of bloggers. Of course, now I've been to conferences. I spoke at conferences on blogging, um, started a podcast, learned all about podcasting. But it changed my life, not just financially, but in, in the, the people that I've gotten to meet. Uh, and it allowed me, in, in part, it allowed me to retire early. So I, I can't say enough good things about a side hustle. But I will just, you know, the sort of the, there is a reality check, right? I mean, I was up at 5 a.m. seven days a week. I'd work on the site from 5 to about 7.30, go to work, work on the subway, work at lunch, work at night when the family went to bed. So it wasn't easy, but man, was it a lot of fun. I absolutely loved it. So, I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm a big fan, you know, of side hustles. Um, you know, my approach was sort of the SEO, primarily SEO approach. To build, I mean, because you know, when I sold Dole Roller, it was getting, I don't know, I would say between 500,000 and you know, five or 600,000 visitors a month, maybe something like that. Wow. Um, so it, it was getting a lot of traffic, but that was after 10 or 11 years of working on this thing. And by that time, I had half a dozen people helping me. So, you know, what started out with me, you know, in my basement at a computer by myself, not knowing what in the world I was doing, and then it grew to that. It's just, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, there's, you know, I would highly recommend it in some form. It doesn't have to be that. It can be other things. You, YouTube can be a great platform for folks. Um, obviously, podcasting. So there are a lot of different ways to approach it. But um, I, I can't say enough good things about the experience. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, and just, you know, figuring out a way to monetize it. That's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Like I have a lot of creative journeys and endeavors and projects that I always work on. And I've done some beatboxing, speaking, and obviously this podcast. And my biggest thing is trying to turn that into something that actually makes a decent amount of money, but here or there, like it's, it's made, it's made money and it's helped me in some tight positions before. So I'm grateful for, for those things too. (laughs) Absolutely. And I was watching some of your videos. They're phenomenal. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) You mentioned this too, a little bit, uh, just in regard to retiring, what does, I guess, retiring look like these days? Like, is it the typical, what people think about, you know, working and then just not working anymore? Or do you find that people are, you know, quote unquote, retiring and then still kind of working on on side hustles and fun projects? Everyone that I know that has retired early is still doing some kind of income producing work, whether they're writing and publishing books, uh, blogging, whatever. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Part of it is they enjoy it. Uh, but I don't think that's the whole story. You know, you can do all the math in the world to figure out your number that you need to retire on. Uh, But then going from working and having this income stream to not working and relying only on your investments psychologically is a huge, it's very difficult. Now, you know, when you're in your 60s and you've got some social security and you're older, so you're, you know, I mean, not to be too morbid, but you're not going to live as long. Uh, as someone say retiring at 50, for example, um, you, you know, it's, it's a little different, but when you retire early, uh, it's very difficult psychologically to just start living off of your investments. And I can speak from experience on that. And the people I talk to that are in similar situations, same thing. So, um, yeah, retirement doesn't look like it did a couple of generations ago where you work for so long and then you just stop cold turkey. There's other reasons for it. I mean, given technology, the internet, I mean, you you can do a lot of different jobs um, much later in life that aren't as physically demanding um, than you could, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, for example. So uh, I think that's changed the equation too. And we're living longer. So, you know, you need a retirement to last longer than you did 50 years ago. Uh, so there's a lot of different factors that go into it, but yeah, I think by and large, traditional retirement is definitely uh, gone uh, down in terms of popularity. Uh, but the good news is you can you can earn income in a lot of different ways that that gives you a lot of independence in your in your lifestyle, in terms of when you work and where you work and how you work. And to me, that's the ultimate goal, rather than getting to a point where you do nothing. I wanted to run through kind of a scenario if you're if you're sure. game for that. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but what if you're someone who, you know, is maybe mid fifties and you have not really done anything to prepare for retirement, or you've had, I guess, I guess just a lot of challenging, you know, moments in life uh, for whatever reasons with family struggles or job struggles. Uh, and it's just been hard for you to kind of prepare for retirement and you're starting much later than I guess the typical person would. What are some things that you could do to kind of catch up for for lack of better words? Yeah. So this may sound strange, but actually the early reti- you, you need to follow the folks in the early retirement community, which seems kind of odd because you're kind of already past early retirement, right? But, you know, the folks in early retirement, they graduate high school or college, 
And, um, you know, there's no one mold, but, you know, one way to do it. But a lot of them, you know, try to retire in their 40s, let's say, right? Um, so you're talking about 20 years of work and then some form of retirement. Well, if you're 50 or mid-50s, you're kind of in the same boat, right? You, you, you've got about 20 years uh, before you may be forced to retire, uh, whether it's for health reasons or whatever, or at least significantly reduce your, your work. And so uh, what the early retirees folks do, the FIRE folks do, can help someone in their 50s that have, have gotten a late start. And the reality is you got to think outside the box. You got to make tough, tough decisions um, in terms of, for example, where you live, uh, not just within your community, but even are you living in the right place? I mean, for example, if I were in that situation, I probably wouldn't live in Northern Virginia, just too expensive. Uh, you're going to have to make decisions about, you know, particularly if you have children, maybe they're grown by this point, but your ability to help them financially may be significantly impaired. And yet I know a lot of parents that want to help their children and I get that we want to help our children, but at some point you've got to take care of yourself. And so you have to make some tough decisions and I'm not going to, you know, pretend that they're, that, that it's easy, but you have to accept the, the realities that you're facing the good news is, you know, if you're 50, you, know, you can work till you're 70, let's say. Uh, 20 years is a long time to save a lot of money if you really buckle down and make the, the tough decisions um, that you have to make. Again, the specifics are going to vary greatly from one situation to another. But generally, I would recommend um, following the, the FIRE community because what they're doing to save money and earn money and invest it is exactly what a 50-year-old is going to have to do who hasn't hasn't started saving yet. Awesome. Thank you very much for that that answer. I think that's got some awesome advice that will definitely will definitely help out for those listening. Uh and also I guess leaning towards leaning in towards the listeners and maybe what they would need help with. Uh, I know for for most of us we've never done any kind of investing before. So uh if whether you're the 50-year-old, you know, starting a little bit late or whether you're the 25 year old out of college trying to get things started like what are some what 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 can we do to start investing and make sure that we're doing it right great question um let me try to give you as quick an answer as i can and i'm focused mainly on stock and bond investing the kind of investing you would do with mutual funds in a 401k it's not the only kind of investing right you could invest in real estate for example you could invest in a business but i think for most people they're investing into their 401k or an ira and it's much easier, and, it, and I'll add, much harder than people think. Why is it easy? It's easy because uh, the best kind of mutual funds are what are called index mutual funds. They just track an index like the S&P 500. They're very inexpensive because mutual funds cost money. They don't send you a bill, but they take their fees out of your account monthly or quarterly or whatever. Uh, and some mutual funds can be very expensive. And by very expensive, I mean half a percent or 1% or more. doesn't seem like a lot of money, but multiplied over decades of investing, it's huge. Index funds are, are, are generally cheap. You know, a Vanguard or Fidelity index fund could be five basis points, which is just, you know, uh, 120th of 1%, right? 100 basis points is, is 1%. So, you know, a, a, a perfectly great um, investment portfolio would be 
say 40 or maybe 50% in a, 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 an index fund that tracks the S&P 500, maybe um, a, a big chunk in uh, an index fund that tracks international companies, say the, the two totaling up to whatever, 70 or 80% equities, and the rest in uh, a bond fund, usually that uh, invests in, say, uh, treasury bonds, which are bonds issued by the U.S. government. You could even simplify it further and just put all your money in what's called a target date retirement fund, where they, they take your money into one fund and they divvy it up along the lines I've just described for you. You want to make sure you get a good one. I think Vanguard has probably some of the best. But that's all pretty easy to do. And most of those funds you'll find in your 401k or you can open up an IRA at Vanguard or Fidelity. Not that difficult. It may seem intimidating at first if you've never done it. And you'll need to keep learning and, and reading and learning and reading and learning. But that's the easy part. <laughs> the yeah. hard part is when, you know, you, you follow this advice, you know, you, you start investing in index funds in a 401k and, you know, you've got some money in there. Then COVID hits and your, your portfolio drops by 30%. And you think, wait, what was the name of that idiot that Parker had on the podcast who said <laughs> index funds were good? Um, you know, we, we will go through difficult times like this. We did it and we saw it again in 07, 08. You know, down into March of 09, basically the market lost 50%. And it's going to do it again. I guarantee you it will do it again. I just can't tell you when. I don't know when. It's going to happen over and over and over again. And you have to be able to stick to your investment plan during those kinds of markets. The hard part, in addition to seeing your balance go down, is that there's always other bad things happening in the world when the market goes down like that. Currently, it's COVID-19. In 08, 09, it was a housing uh, crash, and we thought the banks were going to go belly up. We thought the auto companies were going to fold. Uh, unemployment hit 10% at one point, right? All these other, it wasn't just the market, all these other bad things. 9-11 and the tech bubble bursting, obviously very bad things. And you can go all the way back to, you know, the stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression. A lot of bad things happening. And that makes it difficult for people to stick to their investment plans. But those that do um, in the long term uh, end up doing quite well. So that's my, that's my, I don't know how long I just took, three minute spiel <laughs> on investing. No, you're I mean, good. Yeah, I, 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 there's a whole like universe of stuff that you should learn and and continue to learn. I continue to learn now, but that's yeah, that's investing in a nutshell. By the way, don't trade options on Robinhood's platform or buy crypto. Those are ways to go broke. <laughs> don't 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 invest on margin. That's that's you might as well just put your money in the driveway and set it on fire. Thing. Well, that's some good, you know, what hope, to do and what not to do. <laughs> I hope Robin Hood is not an advertiser on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> nope. No, I actually, you know, I haven't even really done advertising on the podcast. I okay. should look into it. But no, yeah, I, I mean, it's some good what to do's and what not to do's. Uh, and that's kind of going with this next question I had for you, too. And that's, you know, maybe what's one of the the not to do's that you've learned from like experience, like maybe one of the worst mistakes you've made with, with money? Well, I think the worst mistake with money I made was probably how I started to spend it when I first made partner at a big firm. Um, you know, I bought a nice car, fancy watch, you know, got, joined a country club, did the things that lawyers in Washington, D.C. do. And it was very quick after that where I said, that's like the dumbest thing ever. So sold the watch left the country club. Don't miss any of that. I don't even wear a watch. If I wear a watch, it's an Apple watch. Um, 
that was probably the dumbest thing uh, that I've done with money. I say the, the second dumbest thing was that I never saved until I got out of law school. And as I look back on my younger years, I wish I would have been saving. Honestly, high school students should be saving and investing money. It doesn't have to, you know, you can still have fun. You can use your money to go out with your friends or whatever, but you should be saving and investing some of it even in high school. And I wish I would have done that. Got it. Well, and for anyone who's in high school or, you know, college or early career, mid-career, anyone listening to this podcast, like uh, there's some resources out there, you know, too. Even even the podcast that that you're a host on, the the Dough Roller podcast, like there's there's things out there where you can go to start learning this stuff. And this has been really an eye-opening interview for me because I need to <laughs> I need to get on it. And so I need to start consuming some of that content and just see what I can do. But other than those things too, what are some other resources that you might suggest for for listeners to go to if they want to, you know, dive into this? Well, the little the, let's see, the little book of common sense investing is a good book. It's written by Jack Bogle. He's the late Jack Bogle. He passed away not long ago, but he was the founder of Vanguard. That's a great resource. If you Google 31 day money challenge, that was a series that I put together years ago. And it's an interview of a bunch of people and resources that sort of walk through all, all of really almost all aspects of, of money, not just investing. I do think retire before mom and dad, my book is a good resource. It's not, uh, the title suggests it's about early retirement. Um, don't tell anyone Parker, but that's not really what it's about. Um, <laughs> Although it does go through the math of early retirement. So if folks are interested in that, that's um, there. Um, those are all good uh, resources. If you, I'll give you another one if you want like a forum where there's discussions and it's the Boglehead. Bogle, again, Jack Bogle, named after him, the founder of Vanguard. Uh, but the Boglehead's a tremendous resource uh, for investing. So that, that'll certainly keep your listeners busy for a while. And me busy for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna. I, that's one thing I love about hosting a podcast is learning from everybody, and then just being able to re-listen back to this stuff and take the advice and start looking up their suggestions <laughs> and right. trying to improve. Ultimately, you know. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, if you're game to do this, uh, quick, less than five minute segment. <laughs> sure. Rob, what makes you upbeat? Well, some days I'm not upbeat. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I think doing what I love each day, which for me is learning. I've been very focused on learning in 2020. So I've read probably 30 books this year and on all different subjects. I've read a book about ants of all things. I've read the, the <laughs> I'll tell you, the autobiography of Malcolm X is phenomenal. If you've never read it, you should. Um, <laughs> I, I read uh, the, bi uh, the biography of Robin Williams. Oh, uh, so all kinds of- yeah, all kinds of different books. Um, but that's what keeps me upbeat is just you know, focusing on improving at whatever I'm doing, learning more, um, just step by step. If each day I can make a small improvement, then I consider that an upbeat day. <laughs> Great answer. Uh, who's your number one influence or inspiration? That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you right now, I've been, I've been listening a lot to the Tim Ferriss show. Uh, and I'm not really a podcast listener, even though I, you know, we're, we're, talk, we're on one and I'm, I have my own. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but some of his guests on his show are just amazing. I don't know if I would necessarily describe them all as influencers. I guess many of them are, uh, but I've been uh, spending some time uh, listening to that lately. 
Awesome. I'm going to have to go back. I, I listen to his show a lot, uh, you know, when I was learning about podcasting, but then for some reason I've just kind of uh, dropped off of that. I need to get back into it. Right. Uh, what music do you listen to to kind of just stay upbeat and motivated? So I actually, um, I listen to old stuff, right? Because I'm old. So I listen <laughs> to 70s music primarily. I grew up a Billy Joel fan. Uh, nice, but I listen to all kinds of different things, but, but most of it out of that, that era, I suppose. And it's funny you mention music because I have Sonos in our, in our home. I have speakers in my office and I find during the day, sometimes I'm kind of lost my, my energy, my motivation and turning on the music can actually, I mean, it seems like such a simple thing, but it can actually rejuvenate you. It does me and it kind of helps me get through the uh, the, the late afternoon when I start to slow down. Yeah. That's, that's one of the best things about music is the mood boost. Do you have a favorite TV show right now? Not, I mean, I, I wish I had a great answer to that. I could say <laughs> Gilligan's Island and show my age and people won't even know what that is, but that's not really my, my favorite. I, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was, is terrific. Um, but I, I digest those in like a day and a half when they come out and then I have to wait another year for the whole series. Uh, but that's a, a funny and smart show. That's, I guess that's one of them. Awesome. Well, the last one here is just, uh, what's your favorite social media platform and where, I guess, can people connect with you if they want to reach out? My favorite's probably YouTube. Um, and I have a YouTube channel. Just look for Rob Berger uh, on YouTube. And yeah, I think that's the one that I spend the most time on now. Sweet. Well, thanks again for being on uh, The Upbeat Seat is what this segment's called. Uh, I always end it by beatboxing the guest's name, so I'll just do a quick beatbox for you. I love it. Hope I can use that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll clip it. Well, and I can always record another one for you, too. That's so. great. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much, Rob, for being on Upbeats. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share, uh, you know, as we as we part ways here? I think probably the, the only thing I would say is just keep learning. Um, that's been a big focus of mine in 2020. As much as you think you might know about something, you, there's always more to learn. And um, I try to approach these things with humility, uh, you know, not get too set in my ways. And um, I actually recently read a great book called Mastery by George Leonard. It kind of talks about the lifelong journey of learning. He calls it a goalless journey, which I think is a good way to describe it because I'm so goal-oriented. Sometimes you just want to put the goals aside for a moment and just, and just practice whatever it is you do, whether it's podcasting like you're doing um, or investing. Um, so I guess that's what I would – that would be my parting words of wisdom, I suppose. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it, Rob. Thank you very much for for allowing us some of your time and, and for the lessons that you helped us learn today. Thanks, Parker. Appreciate it. So there you have it, my interview with Rob Berger. Uh, again, Rob, thank you very much for being on Upbeat. Uh, to everyone listening, thank you too for listening. If you enjoyed the episode or got value from the episode, please share it with a friend and leave an Upbeat review. That is always, always much appreciated. And of course, go check out the new website for the full show notes and resources and more at parkercane.co, parkercane.co. You guys are the best. I'll see you next week. <laughs>